CUA is the voice of urology in Canada. Europedia Canada is your resource for education. Visit CUA.org. So uh, just to start off with the kidney cancer session, it gives me a great joy to introduce uh, our good friend, Dr. Danny Heng, who is currently clinical professor and head of medical oncology at the University of Calgary, section chief at medical oncology, Tom Baker Cancer Center, staff medical oncologist at Tom Baker. So Danny, thank you so much for accepting our, our invitation to give us highlights of the kidney cancer uh, session in, uh, from ASCO 2021 and look forward to your lecture. Perfect, thank you. Thanks, Anil. Um, I'm just going to share my screen here and it's a great opportunity to be able to discuss all of these, um, uh, all of these uh, abstracts with you and I'm on with some great faculty, uh, both Rodin and Nand are here and so uh, uh, we're going to round out a great RCC session for all of you. And so um, I'm going to uh, talk about some RCC highlights from a medical oncologist's point of view uh, and, uh, and then we'll go from there. Here are my uh, disclosures. And so I think the biggest splash, the plenary uh, for RCC was adjuvant therapy. So, uh, uh, you know, we've, we've been investigating the adjuvant therapy space for a very long time. We had adjuvant sunitinib, serafinib, pazopinib, excitinib, serafinib. Uh, we've done all of these clinical trials and uh, really haven't come up with much. S-TRAC was positive. Uh, so you could use sunitinib uh, to uh, improve disease-free survival, but the honest truth is we don't really use it that much. Um, and when we do use it, it's usually a really high-risk people, which you'd argue, you know, maybe they would need systemic therapy eventually anyways. And so really the landscape of adjuvant therapy didn't really exist except for clinical trials. Once you take out the kidney, you watch uh, and follow the CAUA guidelines uh, for, uh, for surveillance. But then came this, this is pembrolizumab versus placebo. And this was uh, presented by my good friend, Tony Schwery, uh, on behalf of all the keynote 564 investigators, looking at pembro versus placebo post-nephrectomy uh, as adjuvant therapy. This was a double-blind placebo-controlled trial of pembrolizumab versus placebo. And, um, uh, and the primary endpoint was disease-free survival and secondary endpoints were overall survival. In Keynote 564, these were the patients that were included. So there were intermediate high-risk patients, high-risk patients, and M1 NED patients. And you can see how they're categorized in this, in this chart here. So for intermediate high-risk, you know, we're looking for grade four or sarcomatoid for PT2. Uh, so that makes it higher risk. Um, uh, for T3, any grade, high risk is over here, T4 tumors or no positive tumors. And what I thought was really stand out um, uh, was this M1 NED category. So patients with a solitary pulmonary metastasis, take that out um, and, uh, and have your nephrectomy uh, around the same time. And then now your NED, should we give you pembrolizumab or not? So that makes us have a more higher risk section. Uh, endpoints come out faster uh, by doing that. And maybe we're uh, treating patients um, that really need it uh, more because they're, they have much higher risk disease. These are the baseline characteristics. The median age was 60. And you can see that for M1 NED, only about 5.8% of patients were included. So the vast majority of patients were in the intermediate high-risk category here, 86%, uh, 87%. So this is the primary endpoint of disease-free survival. It's the intent to treat population investigator assessment. And despite us um, uh, having a short median follow-up, you can see that the hazard ratio is already 0.68 and it's statistically significant. Um, there's about a 10% difference at 12 months and at 24 months. So we can say that uh, you know, the disease-free survival rate is about 10% different um, between pembrolizumab and placebo. In terms of different subgroups, uh, you can 
see that there weren't really any subgroups that uh, stood out, uh, but I did want to point out for M1NED, there's a very small population, only 58 patients, yet they were able to make a big splash, a good hazard ratio that's statistically significant. And it's probably because they have much higher risk disease and events happen much more frequently in this population than the rest of the population. So we're able to see a statistically significant difference favoring pembrolizumab versus placebo. And here are the interim overall survival results. And actually, to be honest, this kind of surprised me. I wasn't expecting any hint of overall survival yet uh, because it was just too early. Uh, um, you know, this, this is one of the first trials to report out adjuvant immunotherapy, but it was actually one of the later trials to start accrual. And so, uh, so they had very early data, but yet they're able to see some sort of difference in, um, in hazard ratio 0.54. It may look statistically significant with a p-value of 0.0164, but I caution you it's not. Uh, because this is an early look, um, the, the p-value actually has to be 0.000093 um, uh, uh, or less, and it doesn't reach that threshold. So we can't call this statistically significant. We could say maybe uh, there may be an early difference, but honestly, if you look at the two curves, it's really hard to see a difference right now. So it's a bit too immature to comment. Only 51 events have happened and uh, we obviously need a lot more before we can comment on overall survival. This is the treatment-related adverse events uh, that are with an incidence of greater than 5%. Fatigue, pruritus, hypothyroidism, diarrhea, rash, all of these are expected. We've all used pembrolizumab before, uh, and it's fairly well tolerated, um, especially as a single agent. Um, there are worries if you use it in an adjuvant population, is it harder to use? Um, and uh, uh, it would be interesting to see that data about discontinuation. So really, I think this is practice changing, um, or at least has strong potential to be practice changing. It is DFS positive and OS is pending, but there is a signal. Um, I think this data is good enough to lead to FDA approval, quite honestly. Um, I think uh, uh, this is a, a space that's, uh, that, um, that does require uh, a, a drug. There is sunitinib uh, FDA approved for this space in the adjuvant setting uh, in the US, but uh, not a lot of the, the uptake is, isn't very good. And I think if sunitinib got FDA approved with DFS alone and no LS, then it follows that pembrolizumab should as well. So I think if we follow this, um, uh, we'll, we'll see that maybe FDA approval will come soon, uh, but uh, what about the rest of the world, including Canada? And I wonder if we'll need to require uh, OS and, and more follow-up and get confirmation of OS benefit before reimbursement. If there is no overall survival benefit, then the question will be, should we be using Pembro now or Pembro later? Because if everyone survives the same, maybe we actually treat fewer patients get fewer toxicities if you do Pembro later. Uh, for example, if you use Axi Pembro uh, in the first line setting, for example. But if there is positive OS, Pembro will become the standard of care everywhere. Uh, I think that the M1 NED data is interesting. And so uh, is, it, is it better to use IO earlier now? Uh, because you know, we, we do think about surveillance a lot with our metastatic patients. Um, but you know, if this data pans out when we follow it more, should, does this mean that for M1 NED patients, we should be using earlier therapy? And I think that's really interesting. And then I guess the other question will be what happens with all of the other PD-1 or PD-L1 therapies currently under investigation? Um, what about perioperative strategies like perioperative nivolumab? Uh, Canada did a really good job um, enrolling to the PROSPER clinical trial. And uh, that's this here. It just closed today, actually. So thank you to everyone uh, for, uh, for um, uh, accruing to this clinical trial. And so uh, just to refresh everyone's memory, it's patients with resectable RCC but it also included M1-NED patients as well, um, randomized to uh, one dose of nivolumab uh, followed, uh, followed by resection and then uh, another nine doses of nivolumab or observation with, uh, with the surgery. Uh, and so we look forward to see whether or not the perioperative strategy is any better. But if the PROSPER trial is positive and the uh, pembrolizumab trial is positive, then we won't have any head-to-head -head comparisons. And so I think there will be questions of, okay, which is better? Should we use a perioperative strategy or should we use a purely adjuvant strategy? So that was adjuvant RCC.
see that it was really exciting for me uh, and it was great to see uh, a plenary uh, for RCC once again. So here are some updates on some of the existing trials that we already know about. This is the clear trial of Invatinib plus Pembrolizumab um, or the Invatinib Everolimus versus Sunitinib with advanced RCC, looking at quality of life data. And so just to summarize what they saw in the clinical trial, um, there is a PFS difference uh, and an OS difference with Limvatinib Pembrolizumab compared to Sunitinib. And the overall response rate was quite astonishing 71% with a 16% CR rate with lenvatinib pembrolizumab first line for metastatic RCC. For lenvatinib everolimus, things didn't really pan out uh, as well in the first line setting. So really we won't talk about this uh, in the first line setting. It's just lenvatinib and pembrolizumab. So this is the study design here. As I said earlier, it was a three-arm clinical trial, but really we're focusing on the lenvatinib pembrolizumab versus sunitinib. And they did uh, Fixie DRS uh, questionnaires, ERTC, QLQ, C30 questionnaires, and EQ5D3L uh, questionnaires. And this is what it looked like. People that got pembrolizumab uh, and lenvatinib may have had better physical functioning scales um, and uh, better fatigue scales, better dyspnea and constipation scales. But overall, for the overall scores, there really wasn't a statistically significant difference. Um, and so, uh, so at least we can say that it doesn't make you worse, which is really good. And it actually, in some aspects, it may actually make you better, like with fatigue or dyspnea or constipation. So I think uh, it's great that we have this data because we have so many of these options now with VEGF TKIs and IO therapies that we need something to differentiate them, be it CR rate or quality of life. And so this quality of life um, information is important, indicating that at least your quality of life doesn't deteriorate and it might actually be better in some realms. Now what about Pembroaxi? So Pembroaxi, we all use Pembroaxi now as our VEGF IO therapy of choice because uh, that's what we have access to. Uh, we don't have access to Cabonevo or Lenvatinib Pembro because if we did, we might be using those agents as well. Uh, so this was an update by Brian Reaney looking at a 42 month median follow-up. So 42 months is very long. This is the longest median follow-up that we have for all of our VEGF IO trials. Um, but it's not as long as Ipinevo's clinical trial follow-up. So they have reported 42-month minimum follow-up. So this is 42-month median follow-up, which is a bit different. So to, rem uh, to remind us, uh, this is uh, first-line MRCC, pembrolizumab plus excitinib versus sunitinib. And the overall survival was statistically significant. And the hazard ratio is now 0.73. It used to be a little bit lower, but now it's 0.73. But nevertheless, it's still statistically significant. This is the progression-free survival, still statistically significant, 0.68. And I just wanted to show you, in terms of the progression-free survival, you know, I've been wanting to wait for this tail. Is there a tail of the curve here? And I, I can't really see one yet. Is it still too early? Maybe, does it go all the way down? No, it doesn't go all the way down. Would the tail of the curve end up around here? I guess we have to wait to find out. There is a tail to the PFS curve for Ipinevo and that hangs out around 35%. Um, there's a PFS tail of the curve there. And so we'll have to see whether or not uh, we see a, a tail of the curve and see what it's like in uh, this population. This is the uh, objective response rate, 60% versus uh, 40%, so 60% is high. And the overall CR rate is about 10% for Pembroaxi. What about efficacy in IMDC subgroups? Uh, for the favorable risk patients, the hazard ratio is not statistically significant. And I think people point to this out often. Uh, what about the favorable risk patients? These trials were never really designed to look at favorable risk patients. They have a median survival of about 50 months. Uh, so we're not there yet with a median follow-up of 42 months. Um, and I, you know, I think um, to expect this to be statistically significant is really hard because it wasn't de designed that way. Uh, to look at favorable risk patients. So because all of these patients were included in the clinical trials, for my favorable risk patients, I actually do use pembroaxi unless there is a contraindication to a PD-1 inhibitor. I'm sure one day there we will find patients that just require a VEGF inhibitor, but we don't know who those people are yet. So lymphatinib pembro, overall, the quality of life is about the same with some exceptions of benefit. We can't do cross-trial comparisons, 
Uh, and Cabo Nevo and Ipi Nevo also have quality of life improvement over sunitinib. Pembroaxi continues to be efficacious. Um, we do look at the fatal risk hazard ratio, but I think it, it's really hard to tease that out too, too much. Uh, but I do note that in the fatal risk group, Axi Pembro gives a CR rate of 11.6% versus 6.1%. So there are more CRs if you use Axi Pembro, and we sacrifice that if we just use a VEGF inhibitor. There doesn't appear to be a tail of the curve yet. We'll see what happens. And the big debate continues for, do you use a first-line VEGF IO therapy, uh, first-line to get really good response rates of 60, 70%, or do you use Ipinevo, uh, who has smaller uh, response rates, but they have a tail of the curve with long-term durable responses. And so uh, I look forward to seeing more data about that later. And that's what I got about, uh, from, G uh, from ASCO this year. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. That was um, an awesome tour de force of kidney cancer, ASCO. Um, I have some questions I'm going to ask you, but probably at the end, we're going to go now to uh, Dr. Nan Swaminath. Uh, Dr. Swaminath is Associate Professor at McMaster University and the Director of the Radiation Oncology Fellowship Program. He has a particular interest uh, in um, uh, SBRT for kidney cancer, localized and metastatic, and has published uh, widely on that. So, Anand, we look forward to your uh, discussion about the highlights uh, from radiation oncology point of view for the kidney cancer session. Thank you for coming. Great. Thanks so much, Anil. I appreciate it. And thanks so much for the invitation, Anil and Nora. And it's great to present alongside um, Danny and Rod today in the kidney cancer session. I'm just going to share my screen if you just bear with me for a minute. Um, so while Danny talked about sort of the main course, um, with all the pr uh, potential practice changing data that was presented at plenary. Radiation oncology was probably less represented uh, at ASCO. So I'm gonna go through some snacks for thought as opposed to anything sort of groundbreaking. These are just my disclosures. And so the learning objectives are really some tidbits or tidbits from ASCO. And I think really the, the question is the integration of radiotherapy in the context of metastatic RCC. And that's what most of the abstracts that I reviewed um, uh, and, and sort of caught my eye uh, dealt with. Um, uh, uh, so kind of looking at the role of, of, of radiation and brain metastases with, with uh, immune checkpoint inhibition and metastatic renal cell carcinoma, the use of SBRT for oligoprogressive metastatic renal cell carcinoma, and then some other data on SBRT combination with immune checkpoint inhibition, and can we predict with these, which patients may respond better to um, combination treatment. So the first abstract overview was a poster discussion that looked at um, real-world outcomes, uh, ostensibly, of patients with brain metastases. And this is the Checkmate 920 study, which was basically a stage, uh, or sorry, phase three, B4 uh, study. And, and they looked at different cohorts, and they've already presented on some of these cohorts, uh, mainly those with non-clear cell histology. But I think the cohort that interested me and that they've updated their data on is now patients who presented with brain metastases uh, treated with AP and NEVO. And so um, it was a small, uh, small group of patients, only about 28 patients, but I think some of the data is quite intriguing in that most of the patients who are on this um, cohort actually had treated uh, upfront brain metastases, either with stereotactic radiosurgery or some form of local therapy, be it surgical resection or whole brain radiation. And the vast majority of patients actually had limited brain mets. So of the 28 patients, most of them had uh, five or less brain mets, which is, which is interesting when you kind of look at some of the results of the study. Um, when, when, when they looked at the results comparing, or sorry, not comparing, but uh, after um, immunotherapy, what they found was that the overall response rate was about 32%. Uh, they didn't see any CRs in the study. I'll get into that in a second. And the, uh, the duration of uh, response was about uh, an average of 24 months. Uh, they did look at intracranial progression, which I think was interesting. And about a quarter of the cohort actually progressed intracranially. And it could be uh, related to the fact that some, most of them receive the local therapy, like stereotactic radiosurgery. We know that those who get radiosurgery, uh, we can control the lesions very well, but they do present with uh, progression outside of those areas and other areas of the brain. 
And so uh, the type of progression that was seen was only intracranial and mainly the appearance of new lesions. And that actually prompted uh, the majority of patients who did present with intracranial possession to actually get their study drug discontinued. Uh, uh, so even despite the fact that um, brain mets progressed, I think it's, it's, it's a real kudos to the radiation oncology community that we're actually identifying these patients, treating them and allowing the study drug to continue, which is, which is really nice. Now, in general, they saw a uh, median progression free survival of about nine months um, and a two year overall survival of 63%. And there was no increased safety signals with the subsequent immune checkpoint inhibition following brain radiation, which again is very reassuring for this subgroup of patients who weren't necessarily um, involved in the um, previous randomized trials. So while it seems safe and the uh, PFS is reasonable, I think there are small numbers in this population. And the fact that we didn't say these CRs is interesting. So, you know, we get this sort of thought in our mind that if we give radiation therapy before immune checkpoint inhibition, or if there's some interplay between the two, you know, there's this sort of pie in the sky abscopal effect. We're not seeing uh, response rates that are really too much different than what you saw in the clinical trials. So maybe, or maybe not, or maybe this is just a different population. And we know the patients with brain mets um, have a, a little bit of a different prognosis uh, in terms of a worse prognosis for with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. We did know that the main mode of progression appears to be intracranial. And um, I think that the, the fact that most patients continued on their study drug was good uh, and that we're identifying patients that we can salvage with further radiotherapy, be it stereotactic radiosurgery some, or, or surgery um, uh, as, as another therapy. So those, that, that's actually reassuring. Um, and then the question is, should the presence of brain meds be considered as an important prognostic variable when we're stratifying patients knowing that their uh, PFS and perhaps their OS may be slightly lower? But I don't think that should stop or dissuade folks from treating patients with immune checkpoint inhibition. It certainly shouldn't stop the radiation oncology community from uh, thinking about stereotactic radiosurgery or some form of radiation to the brain for metastatic renal cell carcinoma and making sure we follow them very closely and trying to salvage them. And the, the concept of trying to continue on patients on, on their, on their uh, current systemic therapy became sort of a theme in this meeting. And, and, and so that led to the second abstract, which was a poster presentation looking at stereotactic radiotherapy for oligoprogressive metastatic kidney cancer. And so these are patients who have more widely spread kidney cancer um, uh, and, and may progress in, in limited amounts of sites. And in this study, they, they, they define that as being three or less sites of progression. And so the um, inclusion criteria for this small study, but 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 still prospective study was um, three or less metastases. And the primary endpoint was actually looking at the extension of ongoing systemic therapy for greater than six months in greater than 40% of the patients. Now, if you look at the right-hand uh, figure here, it kind of shows you the trajectory of these patients before they received their SPRT. So the SPRT was done sort of where these diamonds align at time zero, but you can see that the duration of systemic therapy was pretty variable. Um, and uh, about half the patients received immune checkpoint inhibition and half of them received TKI therapy prior to their oligoprogression. So a bit of a mixed bag of patients, a bit of a mixed bag of lines of therapy uh, in terms of first line, second line. The vast majority of these patients were second line um, oligoprogression, but uh, some were first line and some were kind of later line therapy. And the radiation to uh, for the oligoprogression was in a wide variety of areas, bone, lung, lymph node, or otherwise. Um, and so what they found was that the MPFS, which they defined as that sort of ongoing uh, extension of systemic therapy was 44.2%. So it met the primary endpoint. And so SVRT did allow extension of therapy in 70% of patients after six months. But I think we need to follow these patients a little bit longer. The median follow-up was 10 months. And you can see, based on the right side of this uh, diagram, a lot of the patients, almost half the cohort, um, you know, they reached the six-month endpoint but just barely. And so I think it's it's important to follow these patients longer to see if they still have durable oligoprogression. Another interesting tidbit to this is that um, uh, there was S, there was actually further SVRT given for further oligoprogression. So they didn't really stop um, if they progressed oligo again. They were allowing further SVRT. About 30% of the patients received further SVRT. And all the radiated lesions were controlled very well at this short time interval. Um, so this actually uh, compares, sorry, one other thing about this study was that um, one of the risk factors that they saw was that if you had widespread metastatic disease at the time of your progression, you were more likely to fail um, because of distant progression elsewhere. That kind of intuitively makes sense. Um, more limited disease probably means better uh, durable control of disease and perhaps prolongation of systemic therapy. 
So this compares actually well with a Canadian study that's been recently reported on, and we were uh, many of us were were involved in. So this is a phase two center led by a uh, study led by Georg Bjornsson and Patrick Chan at Sunnybrook, looking at um, SBRT for uh, patients on TKI therapy. So uh, this this is a bit of a bigger study, all TKI mainly sedative. But what they found was uh, one year PFS of forty one percent, and basically finding that about half of the patients at a year needed to change their systemic therapy. So the median time to change systemic therapy was about a year. And this kind of compares favorably to the study done by UT Southwest in that we can, with SBRT, prolong um, uh, further systemic therapy or continued systemic therapy and may not necessarily need to change that. And we can still uh, salvage even further than that if patients progress all or go beyond that. So what are some caveats to using all of uh, you know these studies, single center or single uh, arm studies of oligoprogression using SVRT? Um, what the what the uh, UT Southwestern group said was there's a median PFS of 27 months, but they measured that from the start of their original therapy, I think, and it, they didn't really specify exactly what that PFS was traditionally. But I think they really uh, took, didn't really take into account the concept of immortal time bias, and that's a big issue when you're looking at single arm studies of oligoprogression or oligometastatic, even with surgery or SBRT. And, if, and the Canadian group uh, actually looked at time on prior therapy as an important prognostic factor. So the longer you were on previous TKI therapy, the better you did when you've oligo progressed. And the UT Southwestern group didn't actually look at that. So I think if you're thinking about designing a further trial, you may want to think about that as an important factor, including the burden of metastatic disease, which the uh, UT Southwest group did. Uh, there was no increased toxicity or QL detriment, fortunately enough, but there was a mix of TKI and immune checkpoint inhibition patients in the UT Southwest trial. And, and again, like I said, a mix of first to fourth line therapy. So they could have differing prognosis. What's interesting is when you look at patterns of progression in, in, in patients with immune checkpoint inhibition, now this is not from this, this uh, ASCO meeting, but from ASCO-GU a few months prior, the patients who are on epinevo as first line therapy, if they, if they actually um, uh, responded to treatment, their, their, their patterns of progression were actually potentially oligometastatic. So if you if you look at the post-response progressors, that they that the 51% of the post-response progressors had a new lesion only as their site of as their, as their first site of progression. So it kind of goes to show in a, in a more novel era where we're starting to use more immune checkpoint inhibition, can we bring SBRT more into the clinic and start treating these patients who may be pro progressing? Um, uh, oligo on their first line of mean checkpoint inhibition. And what they found was the most common sites of new lesion progression were in the lymph nodes, brain, lung, and bone. And we usually treat brain metastases uh, traditionally with further SBRT or radiosurgery has been uh, shown in the previous uh, abstract. But I think I think with lymph node metastases or lung or bone metastases for that matter, we can think about using SBRT more frequently. And then the question really arises, is there equipoise to now think about doing a randomized trial in the first line with immune checkpoint inhibition? And can you stratify that by duration of use and overall burden of metastatic disease? And that'd be something that we could think about. Um, or is it something that's so down the path already that we would normally just consider doing it clinically? And that's one of the questions that kind of arose from these abstracts. Uh, finally, just to think about immune um, checkpoint inhibition and radiation and metastatic uh, kidney cancer, there's really no other groundbreaking, da groundbreaking data apart from a small sub-study of patients um, on the NIVIS trial. The NIVIS trial was a, uh, an Italian study combining SBRT and nivolumab in second line that was presented at um, ASCO-GU last year that really showed a very low response rate. And a subgroup of those patients didn't really show the pdl one status as predictive of tumor response. So we really have a good sense of how to integrate yet SBRT with immune checkpoint inhibition. And there really isn't proof yet of an obscopal effect um, uh, based on the abstracts that I've seen and the studies that I've seen so far. And maybe an obscopal effect doesn't exist, but I think we need properly randomized trials to evaluate this properly. And um, uh, just a shameless plug that the ongoing Canadian cytotrade trial hopefully will help uh, examine that question. Um, and then looking more importantly, maybe at important correlatives. And then the question of equipoise. So I think we need to uh, think about SVRT with the you know, checkpoint inhibition. Um, so nothing really needle moving, but lots of hypothesis uh, generating stuff. So thanks very much. Wonderful, Nanda. Thank you so much for that. Uh, again, I always love your enthusiasm about uh, SBRT and kidney cancer and some great work that you've done and uh, a great summary of ASCO. We're going to go on to uh, Dr. Bro, who is uh, uh, the only one that's put a tie on. It looks very, very handsome. Uh, that's great, Rodney. Look forward to that. Uh, 
Rodney uh, is an associate professor at the University of Ottawa and a uh, hero oncologist there. Uh, he is a, uh, a uh, scientist at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute and a prolific researcher in kidney cancer. So Rodney, thank you for your time and summarizing the highlights of kidney cancer uh, from ASCO. Thanks very much for inviting me. Real honor to be here. Um, can you hear me okay? Perfect. Okay, great. So I'm going to try sharing my slides here. Can you see that? Yep. Um, so I have no disclosures or conflicts of interest. So when I looked at the ASCO meeting, these are kind of the areas of advanced kidney cancer where I look for trials or research that may impact um, treatment. So one is the potential utility or lack of utility for adrenalectomy during large radical nephrectomies, lymphadenectomy, metastasectomy has been touched on a little bit, uh, thrombectomy. There really wasn't a lot in these areas uh, that would really be kind of exciting for surgeons, uh, but there was some data on cytoreductive nephrectomy that I'm going to review uh, because this, I think, is quite pertinent to our practices. And obviously, uh, Dr. Hang presented the adjuvant therapy, which we're going to leave quite a bit of time for at the end to discuss the intricacies of that trial. Uh, but the one study that really kind of caught my eye and I thought was worthwhile and interesting is the FDA did an independent analysis of, of patients that were um, in trials submitted to the FDA with IO combination therapies to look at the survival benefit or lack of benefit to cytoreductive nephrectomy. And this is Dr. Fala at the FDA, who is a medical oncologist. So her she and her colleagues uh, presented this. In the background, we're all aware of the Carmina trial. This was a randomized trial of nephrectomy, then sunitinib versus sunitinib alone. And this kind of turned um, the, the, the world on its ear in terms of cytoreductive nephrectomy, showing no survival benefit. And um, so for most patients, uh, they probably don't benefit from a cytoreductive nephrectomy. But it also sort of introduced quite um, a backlash or, or a pause because we weren't sure if this really was representative of all patients. And we've now noted from the authors of the trial that there probably was a fairly significant selection bias of who was put in, in on study where many patients who were believed to have benefited from a cytoreductive nephrectomy weren't put in trial and they actually got their cytoreductive nephrectomy. So I think there's still some questions, does this truly represent all of our patients who present with metastatic disease? The other issue is that the comparator arm is sunitinib and now IO combination based therapy is the standard of care for most patients in first line as Dr. Heng brought up. So until, we're, until we have the cytoreductive nephrectomy trials that are currently being conducted, which is gonna take many years to get the results of those trials, we're left seeing these patients who are presented to our clinics and we have to try and counsel them the best we can. And this is a frequent conversation, I'm sure at all of your multidisciplinary tumor boards about who might benefit from surgery in, in combination to systemic therapy when they have metastases. So what they looked at were five trials that were submitted to the FDA, and half of those patients actually had metastases at initial diagnosis. Um, the ones who had had nephrectomy were about 500, and the patients who did not have nephrectomy were about 300. That mix might be quite different today, uh, given that cytoreductive nephrectomy has uh, significantly reduced, I would say, at most places around the world. Now, this is essentially a single cohort. So this is not a randomized trial of nephrectomy or no nephrectomy. This just looked at the patients who presented with metastases, separated them by if they had a nephrectomy or not, and looked at their outcomes. Uh, Dr. Heng did a very similar analysis, which was published in European on, uh, on Urology uh, with TKI therapies. So, Obviously, when you look at these two groups, you may say that there's probably a selection bias, and certainly there are some differences between these groups that are important to consider. So one of the ones that I will highlight is the performance status. So patients who had nephrectomy, 
not surprisingly, were healthier. There were fewer people who had ECOG-1 or worse uh, performance status. Importantly, the patients who had nephrectomy had uh, a lower proportion of poor, uh, poor prognostic groups. So you would think that these patients would do worse from an overall survival perspective as well. So the nephrectomy cohort is enriched with people who are going to do worse. Um, and this is an interesting one. There is a fairly large difference in sarcomatoid histology. Now that probably wouldn't select for nephrectomy or not. And I'm actually not sure how that ends up uh, showing out in the overall survival or the response rates. Of course, sarcomatoid histology has a worse prognosis, but we have seen in numerous studies, including some abstracts that were presented at ASCO, showing that IO therapy seems to work particularly well compared to TKIs, especially uh, for patients with sarcomatoid. So again, I don't know if this necessarily favors uh, the nephrectomy group or favors against the nephrectomy group, but it's something that is certainly interesting. So not you know, unexpected, we see that the patients who had a nephrectomy in blue had a better survival than those who did not have a nephrectomy. And even when adjusting for age and um, IMDC risk group, there was a significantly reduced time to death for patients who had uh, a nephrectomy. So this would suggest patients who had nephrectomy did better. Is this due to a selection bias or you know, causing confounding, or is this a real effect of cytoreductive nephrectomy? We're not sure. I think it's important to look at some of these subgroups. This is a forest plot. So all of the dots that would be left of one would favor a cytoreductive nephrectomy. And when they broke it down by risk group, we see that those with favorable and intermediate risk had a larger effect size than the poor risk group. Um, and this would be actually consistent with what uh, Dr. Heng found uh, using the IMDC uh, criteria in the IMDC cohort. So the take home from this, I think really kind of supports uh, a lot of the um, issues surrounding cytoreductive nephrectomy. I think we know that cytoreduct that Carmina included selected patients that may not necessarily be generalizable to all the patients we see. Um, this, the the uh, systemic agent was sunitinib in Carmina, so does that necessarily translate to iotherapy? Maybe, maybe not. Um, I do believe that the decision for cytoreductive nephrectomy, just like metastatic directed therapy, is nuanced. It has to be taken on a patient by patient uh, level. Um, and that future trials are clearly needed. These data show that I don't think we can be certain um, that there is no role for cytoreductive nephrectomy. And uh, I certainly would feel comfortable uh, presenting my patients with these trials um, to try to see if there is some benefit to it. Um, so that's really what I wanted to talk about. We wanted to leave as much time to talk about these abstracts that we presented. So thanks very much. Fantastic, Rodney. Thank you so much. That was a great summary uh, of cytoreductive nephrectomy and the highlights from uh, ASCO. So uh, I think we have some good time for discussion. And um, I think there was a question by Victor Mack uh, let me see if I can pull that up again. Um, and I'll give me, I'll give this to Danny. Danny, uh, Dr. Uh, Mack has asked about neoadjuvant uh, IO therapy for advanced RCC. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, Victor, for a great question. I think the best uh, trial looking at that um, uh, is is the Prosper trial. Actually, uh, it's the largest trial, one cycle of uh, neoadjuvant um, uh, nivolumab. It's perioperative, though, and so it'll be interesting to see if there are any um, uh, correlates when things uh, result out uh, to see if there is any additional shrinkage because of that neoadjuvant dose. Um, uh, there are other smaller studies that haven't reported out yet in the ICI um, uh, era for neoadjuvant therapy. Uh, 
uh, but for the how I how how I think of it is if it can be operated on, we should take it out uh, because currently our our therapies aren't good enough to shrink things down miraculously or substantially uh, that suddenly makes surgery easier. Wonderful, I like that, Danny. You can take it out, take it out. You're a man after my own heart. Doesn't don't I sound like a surgeon? It's great. You do. You do. <laughs> Uh, so I have a, a couple of questions from my own thoughts about this. Uh, in, in the CLEAR study, Pembrolol plus lenvatinib, your complete re response rate was 16%, whereas Pembroxy, even in this long-term long, long -term data, it's 10%. There's been some questions about that 16%, and uh, I want to hear your thoughts about what do you think about that number? Uh, yeah, so 16% is a really high number. Uh, it surprised all of us. Uh, I think it was a bit eye-popping for all of us. And I think it's really important to get longer-term follow-up to see what are these CRs, how long do they last for. We know with the IPNEVO data that the 10 or 12% of CRs um, they are about 85% of them are still in CR after long follow-up, um, uh, 60 month follow-up. Uh, but with Axipembro uh, and Lenvatinib, uh, Pembro uh, and Cabonivo, we don't have those numbers quite yet because the follow-up is still quite short. Uh, so I think for Lenpembro, if they can say the same thing that you know after 60 months of follow-up, uh, the CRs are still CRs, uh, then, then that, that's a big deal. But, you you know, we all have patients where they were in CR, but then they relapsed. So I had a CR uh, and, and, uh, and then they relapsed in the shoulder. There's a big shoulder mass. Uh, I had a CR and then they relapsed in the head a couple years later. And so CR doesn't necessarily mean cure. So I'm very careful when I counsel my patients about CRs. I say, don't expect, you know, that's still incurable. 10% uh, of patients may get a CR, but that means 90% of patients don't. Uh, and amongst the 10% that do get a CR, there's no guarantee that it won't come back again later. Uh, and so we need more longer follow-up on those patients. Outstanding, outstanding. This is a, a question for uh, Dr. Bro, Rodney. It says that Dr. Mark uh, Corkum has asked, uh, for the FDA analysis of cytoreductive nephrectomy with IO, was there any stratification adjustment for volume distribution of metastatic disease at enrollment? They did not present that data, that's a great question. Um, they just stratified it mainly by the IMDC risk criteria. Um, and they, they presented the other ones, but their adjustment was uh, age and IMDC risk. Uh, they did not have detailed information. They, they had combination data from five different trials. So some trials had much more detailed information than others. So they did what they could with what they had. Um, and they do point that out as one of the uh, potential downsides is the volume of metastatic disease and, and probably other prognostic factors that would be important, but that they weren't able to adjust for. And I think that that leaves the window open that the effect that we're seeing with cytoreductive nephrectomy in this cohort could be all completely due to confounding uh, due to factors that we just don't know about or we couldn't adjust for. So great question. Great answer. Um, so Dr. Bro has a question for Danny, but before we do that, I have a, a tricky one for you, Danny. So the Azubin Pembro uh, data is very compelling and it's nice to see that DFS and possible OS. What are you gonna do in sequencing? So somebody who develops reoccurrence after Azubin Pembro, how are you gonna treat them? And what are your thoughts on that? I know your answer is gonna be, we have no data. Uh, but uh, in, uh, because we have the worldwide expert here, I'm going to ask you what your thoughts would be. Would you give CABO after progression of adjuvant uh, Pembro? Would you re-challenge with another IO? Pembro followed by Pembro again. What are your thoughts? Oh, that's a really good question. And you know what? We're we're going to get data on that um, uh, because we're you know we have uh, this collection of all of these adjuvant patients on clinical trials, and so we can definitely study them through CKIS, uh, through the IMDC, and uh, so there's lots of opportunities. This is a hot, hot question and something that we need to to look at immediately. And so I think um, uh, the, in answer to your question, it depends on the timing. So if someone had adjuvant Pembro and then 
five years later they had metastases, I would start all over again and I would use the Axipembro or Lemvatinib Pembro or whatever. Um, but if someone uh, relapsed really quickly after their adjuvant Pembro or even on their adjuvant Pembro, I would be really hard pressed to use a, a, an IO therapy again. I would probably use a TKI. Uh, there are studies uh, looking at using a PD-1 inhibitor after another PD-1 inhibitor. So that there's a Tenevo study, Tavazinib plus Nivalumab, and there's also an Atizolizumab study as well. Um, so uh, I would wait for those results to come out first before thinking about re-challenging with another PD-1 inhibitor. Wonderful. That's a great, uh, great answer. Thank you so much. That's very insightful. Rodney, uh, do you, uh, your question? Yeah. Related to the adjuvant study, uh, I thought it was really interesting. In, you know, in urologic oncology, adjuvant studies, uh, we've kind of been there in so many ways with not just kidney, but prostate and bladder and, and other things. And when I look at the survival curves, uh, you know, they separate and then they kind of stay separated. And so I was quite surprised to see this survival difference because I thought maybe you're just treating these metastatic patients a little bit earlier and then they kind of stay there over time. So that makes me wonder about the comparator arm. And that's always what seems to be the Achilles heel in adjuvant studies. Do you know, did, did Dr. Shuari uh, tell, say at any point that I missed how patients were treated in the observation arm? Meaning, did they get very timely treatment when they had uh, disease progression or metastases identified? And were they treated with Pembro? Because if they didn't get timely treated um, when they recurred, like if they were only getting scanned every six months or something like that, and if they didn't get the same treatment on recurrence, then we may be just seeing a difference between Pembro and a TKI or Pembro and observation and not really the effect of adjuvant therapy. Do you know any additional information on that? That's very insightful, Rod, um, uh, because uh, these things can be related to trial design and, uh, and it's important to tease out in the paper. So we don't have that yet, but you're right. Uh, they didn't discuss uh, subsequent therapy, what were patients' subsequent therapies upon progression. I'm not sure if they collected it. Um, and I think uh, if you uh, if you are on a clinical trial um, and you don't know if you're getting Pembro or placebo or not, um, uh, you know sometimes people get the benefit of the doubt. Uh, okay, you're on trial. Maybe we'll, we just want more evidence that this is progressive disease, and it might carry on a little bit more. And so you're right; those details are still a little bit uncertain. And I think that's why overall survival is really important because that takes away that sort of bias or any or any issues uh, related to that. And so I think, um, you know, we'll wait and see. Uh, uh, they did scan the patients quite often. So in, in these clinical trials uh, with Atizo and with uh, Pembrolizumab, they got CT scans more than every three months. And uh, so, so they would have detected them at regular intervals. Because they got placebo Pembrolizumab, um, uh, they were there at in the infusion chair getting some sort of placebo. And so, uh, so they were technically followed about the same and, patient, and people wouldn't have known if they were on the real thing or not. Uh, most patients were unblinded after. So to Dr. Kapoor's question, you know, uh, upon progression, uh, most people would unblind to make sure are they on pembrolizumab or just placebo, because that might change what uh, we offer them first line uh, when we start treating them. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things with prostate cancer, that's a great example is, you know, when we looked at adjuvant radiation compared to nothing, we saw great benefits to adjuvant radiation. But when we compared you know, in a rigorous way, adjuvant versus an early salvage approach, that effect was lost. And I think, like you said, avoiding the toxicity of any systemic treatment in those who are never destined to fail, you know, is, is a very important uh, thing to consider. So it'll be really interesting to see the paper, I think, when it comes out. For sure. Yeah, the other thing that I think is just fascinating about this paper is the M1NED subgroup. And I think we need to kind of delve into that a little bit more um, because our traditional practice is to resect, resect, or radiate, radiate if they have oligometastatic disease. And so we don't tend to give them treatment until they progress further and then they're kind of eligible. How do you see this fitting in 
in this group? I mean, is it just two small numbers? I mean, it looks pretty real, even though the numbers are pretty small. Um, how, how are we going to manage this going forward? And uh, where do you see like, you know, metastatectomy or ablative radiotherapy fitting into that paradigm? Yeah, for sure. So the standard of care um, right now, if you have N1, M1 NED, is to do nothing. You just watch and uh, and uh, you do CT scans every three months. Hope that it doesn't come back. And if it doesn't come, and if it does come back, then you hit them with targeted therapy, IO or IO IO combinations. Um, but with this data. Uh, it's hypothesis generating because it's not the randomized, uh, it's a subgroup analysis. But with this data, I wonder if, um, you know, we should be thinking about treating earlier than just waiting. I'm not saying treating right away, uh, but, uh, you know, because uh, sometimes when things grow again, we might do some observation and uh, we might wait for it to grow more before hitting it with treatment. And so should we be using things sooner? Is it like prostate cancer where we should be using our ARATs a little bit sooner or dose cetoxyl a little bit sooner. Um, and so I don't think that tr this trial answers that quite yet. We're not there yet, but it does, it is hypothesis generating and something very interesting to study. It does make sense to me though, that then the, those patients that have had metastatectomy, either surgical or radiotherapy, that they would have systemic disease and giving this earlier as the population would, would benefit. And I think now we have some data to support that hypothesis. So, yeah. But I wonder if uh, DFS is good enough for that, you know? Uh, so if we can just say that, okay, we, we staved off uh, disease-free survival, uh, that's great. But if we didn't change overall survival, uh, then to Rod's point, uh, should we have given all of this treatment that can cause colitis, rash, hypothyroidism, should we do that uh, in all of our patients? Or should we just wait until it happens and then we end up treating a much smaller population of patients, save the system a lot more money, save toxicities. Um, and so, so I think that's still the standard of care, uh, but it is still something that deserves more uh, study to see uh, if we should be doing things sooner or not. In well, RCC, I've always thought, okay, um, surveillance is okay. And I still think it is. I still think it's okay where, where patients with low bulk metastatic disease, slow, slow growing disease, there are still candidates for surveillance before starting therapy. Because I can't guarantee them that starting six months sooner than, you know, than now uh, is, um, uh, is an, of any benefit in terms of overall survival. And also maybe out of our hands, because uh, even though the FDA will approve anything, uh, Health Canada won't. And so based upon S-Track not, not uh, approving adjuvant sininib because they had a DFS but no overall survival, I think adjuvant Pembro may also have the same battles getting approval in Canada. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's very a very fair comment. Um, and so, uh, so we'll see what happens. You know, will will Health Canada approve it first, and then we have to wait for P coder and OS for P coder? We'll see. Um, and if that's the case, maybe there'll be an access program where we can try things uh, in the meantime. That would be ideal, and then collect data around it to see if in the real world it, it pans out too. Great discussion. Uh, we're going to wind up. We have five minutes until uh, the witching hour, nine o'clock, where we're gonna hear about bladder cancer. Uh, so Danny, uh, Rodney and Anand, that was a great session, uh, really insightful and thank you for your time. Thanks for the opportunity, Thanks. great. Take care guys. So we'll take a five minute break, uh, break and then Dr. Blay is gonna take, Blay, Norman is gonna take over for the uh, bladder cancer session. Thank you so much.